The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. So as we journey through the Psalms, we're going to turn our attention tonight, as you've already heard, to Psalm 51. Sometimes the most familiar texts in Scripture are the hardest to teach on or to preach on. Why is that? Think about the Christmas story. Think about Psalm 23. Think about John 3.16 even. It's because we're so familiar with the text that we just tend to skim over it. uh, And we read it and we move on. Uh, We don't really take it in. Um, There's another reason that this text is so difficult. Uh, It's because it's so humbling and convicting. Uh, It causes us to... Stop looking at everything around us, and it turns us inward uh, in our hearts. Uh, In fact, this psalm is so difficult that Charles Spurgeon put it off preaching on it for about three or four weeks. Uh, And this is what he said. He said, this psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are one of woman, or one born of woman, but it's freighted. That means it's just filled uh, with an inspiration all divine, as if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth. He says, such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again, but commented on. Where is he who, having attempted it, can do nothing but blush in his defeat? So now that I've lowered the bar a little bit for me, uh, let's go into Psalm 51. Uh, If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. And I I apologize, I've been having a runny nose because of this weather. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So now that we know 
the weight at what's ahead of us. Um, I'm going to do my best to ponder its meaning, and hopefully the truth of this will penetrate our hearts. Now notice here, before we even get to verse 1, this is one of the few psalms that gives us a background that brought it to being. The reason it was written. What's the context that's going on here? To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, if you have your Bible or your phone, whatever, if you want to, you can. Fl- I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's, it's, it's two chapters. So I'll just go back and kind of give a broad overview of what's going on here. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 11, uh, starting in verse 2, it happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And then he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then on down. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David tries to cover his sin. Uh, the first thing David did was to call her husband home. He had this brilliant idea that he could just call her husband home for battle. He would lay with her, and then there would no, there would, nobody would be none the wiser, right? Um, but being a noble man, Uriah is there, and he's not going to lay with his wife while his friends, his comrades are out in battle. So now David's in the pickle. Uh, David's in trouble. So David decides to arrange to have him killed to cover his sin. So the one sin just built on the previous one, built and kept going and kept going and kept falling deeper into sin. And then after all that happened, we get to a verse that John Piper calls one of the most understated verses in the Bible. Second Samuel 11, verse 27. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's an understatement. So what God did, God answer, God's answer to this was to send Nathan the prophet. Nathan the prophet goes to David with a parable that entices David to condemn himself. Uh, he pronounces his own condemnation. And then Nathan says, you are the man. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David breaks. He confesses. I have sinned against the Lord. And then Nathan says something astonishing. The Lord also has put away your sin. Just like that. He has put away your sin and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Here we see a man confronted with his sin, convicted by the Holy Spirit and broken with guilt. So we'll see in Psalm 51 what truly seeking forgiveness looks like. So turn back over to Psalm 51 if you flipped away. Here David starts out with a plea for forgiveness. But notice before he even mentions his sin, what does he do? He appeals to God's character. Specifically, he appeals to his mercy. Look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
God's character is the basis for our plea for forgiveness and David's. Here David is, is pleading according to God's infinite supply of compassion and mercy. You see, David understood God's character. This is what God promised back in Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is merciful and gracious. And how sweet, how sweet is that inexhaustible mercy that's waiting to it for us, waiting to be gracious to blot out our transgressions. Freely bestowed grace is all that can be offered to justify the damnable sinner. That's exactly what David says later on in verse 16. He says, for you will not delight in sacrifice. I would give it. I would sacrifice for you if you would delight in it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Well, we know over in, in, later on in Hebrews chapter 9, 13 and 14, it reminds us that the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, through who the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? There is nothing we can do. Nothing we can offer and nothing that we can give to God to earn our salvation. Except one thing. And David tells us what it is in verse 17. 17 verse 17 is a verse that Martin Luther considered worthy to be written in golden letters. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What a wonderful lesson that is. As we go to God, we don't do so flippantly. We see people praying flippantly like it's our best buddy. We go to God humble and contrite. We go to him with a broken indebtedness. John Calvin comments on this. Where the spirit has been broken, on the other hand, and the heart has become contrite, Through a felt sense of the anger of the Lord, a man is brought to genuine fear and self-loathing with a deep conviction that of himself he can do or deserve nothing and must be indebted unconditionally for salvation to divine mercy. Secondly, after appealing to God's character, he acknowledges the seriousness of his sin. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David's sin is ever before him. It's always on his mind. It eats at him, and there's nothing he can do about it. It's an agonizing reminder that the consequences of sin are often permanent. For David, the loss of Bathsheba's child and his best child, and then the subsequent loss of Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, if you know the story, he lost all of those children. Um, It was a pretty dysfunctional family because of what what David did. Um, And we're not told in Scripture, but quite possibly the killing of Uriah uh, had great and terrible consequences or ramifications to the others that were in the battle. Uh, 
so David's sin goes beyond what happened between him and Bathsheba and then his children. Um, we don't know. However, it's an important thing to understand that we all have sinned. Uh, sometimes, more often than not, and in varied ways, the consequence of that sin lingers. It was true for David, and it's true for us as well. Remember this. Sin may be private and personal, but it always has public consequences. Uh, David experienced this. And later down in verses 18 and 19, this is why he's praying for the good of his people. Uh, He knows that he needs God to forgive not only himself, um, but protect his people, restore your people because of my sin. Verse 4. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Our sin is an attack on God himself. Um, I was talking to to Frank and Meredith and I talk about this. uh, That we like to say that you've sinned against me. Or that child has sinned against us. Uh, In reality, we've sinned. They've sinned against God. Uh, And David knows this. Uh, now, certainly there are others that were affected, Bathsheba, Uriah, the unborn child, and, and on and on, as we just mentioned. Uh, but David recognizes here that the ultimate target of his transgressions is God. David understands that God is just. David understands that God is blameless. David also understands that God is holy, which is exactly why he goes on in verse 4 uh, to vindicate God. He vindicates him by saying, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David is saying here that God would be perfectly just to judge and damn me. That's why he began his petition above all, by appealing to God's mercy. Now, notice something interesting. Uh, You may or may not have caught this. In this psalm, David doesn't confess a specific sin. Did you notice that? He's not confessing a specific sin. He doesn't say, Lord, forgive my adultery. Lord, forgive my deceit. Lord, forgive uh, my murder. Uh, That's because he's acknowledging a much deeper, a much more comprehensive issue. David's adultery and subsequent sin is simply the symptom of the disease. He goes on in verse 5 to acknowledge his depravity. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Here in one verse, David gives us the doctrine of original sin. Uh, David wasn't excusing his sin by saying, I was just born that way. Uh, Rather, he was admitting that he was sinful by nature. uh, And then without God, he would continue to do more and more evil. He's stating what... The, at the time, church-going Martin Lloyd-Jones, if you've heard of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he came to realize when he testified, my trouble was not only that I did things that were wrong, but that I myself was wrong at the very center of my being. <clears throat> but David's anguish doesn't stop there. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God had taught David his ways. God had raised David up to be king. God had kept David. God had provided all that David needed. David was a man after God's own heart, and yet David was overcome by the temptation to sin. 
Sin got the upper hand this time. God delights in our confession of our sinful acts because he desires transparency and truthfulness. David goes on, and this is, a, this is a, a, a theme all throughout Scripture. He goes on to beg God, to plea God, to cleanse him. Look at the second part back in verse 1. Blot out my transgressions. And then verse 2. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then down in verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And then again in the ver- first part of verse 10. Create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, sin is filthy. And it's not an outward filth, like you go roll around in the mud and you jump in the shower and wash it off. Uh, It's a stain. Sin defiles a person, making them dirty from the inside out. Uh, Sin has stained our our, our whole being. It emanates from our heart. It fills our veins. And the only thing that can wash it away is the blood of Christ. Scripture is clear that it's the inward purity that makes fellowship with God possible. Matthew 5, 8. Just a, just a few samples of that. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Psalm 24, 4. He who has, a clean, or he who has clean hands and a pure heart will receive blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now, if you go back a little bit, to 1 Samuel 16, as the Lord was speaking to Samuel, as Samuel was looking for who? The next king, who ended up being David. Uh, What does the Lord tell Samuel? For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Um, And then nearly a thousand years later, the New Testament describes forgiveness and it uses these same terms. Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. 1 John 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from our sin. Now notice back in verse 7, the word hyssop. Does that ring a bell to anybody? That's not a random word that David is saying there. Um, David is referring here to something that occurred hundreds of years before this. The night of the first Passover was the night of the tenth plague. On that fateful night, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb and mark their doorposts and lentils with his blood. They were to spread the blood of the lamb on the doorpost with, guess what? A bunch of hyssop. That's from Exodus 12. Then when the Lord passed through the nation, he would pass over the households that showed the blood on the doorposts. So in a very, very real way, the blood of the lamb saved the Israelites from death as it kept the destroyer from entering their homes. Next, David prays for renewal and restoration. The second part of verse 10. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. The word renew here means to restore, to repair, or reconstruct. David, as we should be when we sin against the Lord, has been crushed. He's broken. At this point, his heart is is feeble. When we're brought low like this, we must ask God to repair the decays 
uh, of spiritual strength that that sin has caused. Sin will decay our hearts, decay our spiritual strength. It pulls us away from God in a sense. And David doesn't just pray that just for now. Uh, from the time that will come. Because we're still sinners going forward. After this plea, David is still a sinner. Uh, he's saying, Lord, fix me for the time to come that I may never in this manner depart from you again. Renew that spirit within me. He asked God to draw near and assure him of salvation. Verses 11 and 12. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, there's a lot in this passage and I'm not going to hit it all. Um, but let me just briefly say what David is not saying here. David is not saying that he's afraid he will lose his salvation. Uh, scripture, is, I think, is clear on that. I don't have time to go there right now, but we can do it after this if you like. Uh, scripture is clear that we don't lose our salvation. Instead, David is refle- reflecting upon his offense against God. He's in agony. And yet he rests on the assurance that being a child of God, he wouldn't be deprived of what he had justly forfeited. Let me put that simply. David knows his sin required punishment, but he's assured God will not withdraw his salvation. Uphold me. The Lord is willing and able. So he says, uphold me with a willing spirit. Part of David's prayer here is that he would find peace, a free and a cheerful spirit after being afflicted with the bondage of his sin. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. The knowledge of our sin in light of God should make us sad. That's an that's a earthy, worldly term. But we should be sad and broken over our sin. Uh, Willful, sinful acts forfeit our joy in God. Every child of God should delight in Him. When we willfully sin against Him, that forfeits our joy. It robs us of our joy. And so David prays here, Restore to me the joy of your salvation that I once had. What a wonderful picture of sanctification. We're we're being broken. God restores us, gives us that joy back. And when he does that, do we just go home and sit on our lazy boys and watch television? No. David wasn't, I mean, I don't think he had a lazy boy, but um, David wasn't pleased with that. He goes on in verse 13 and, and says what? Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. He asked God to use him. Restore me and then use me. He's saying here in effect, Lord, then I will become Nathan or like Nathan and sinners will return to you. I want my life to have an effect on sinners to lead them to the cross, to lead them to conversion. Do we think this way? If you're a believer here tonight, do you think that way? Do you think that you've been forgiven an immeasurable amount? Are you asking God to use you in this season of your life, whether that's with your children, your spouse, 
your coworkers, uh, your family, somebody you meet at the grocery store, to share the good news and the joy that they can have in Christ, to teach transgressors the way of salvation. David did. God broke David. And in doing so, David gained priceless wisdom and a desire to teach others who God is. And then lastly, we see kind of an overarching theme throughout Scripture. We see that forgiveness always, not sometimes, always leads to praise. As we go to God like David does here, or if you remember over in Luke 18, like the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Another appeal to God's mercy, by the way. We can be confident that our sins have been washed as white as snow. We have answered the call to come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have been freed from the guilt that the Son of God had to die for. In 1 Peter 2.9, it instructs us. I know you all remember this. You can quote it before I even say it, I'm sure. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So what? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Imagine David. Think think about David for a second. He's overcome by Satan. Adultery, deceit, murder, and others, on and on. He cries, mercy, Lord. He was forgiven, just like that. It's no wonder he sings in verses 14 and 15, Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Brothers and sisters, does praise flow freely out of your mouths? Do you sing praises when we're gathered together? Do you sing praises or do you simply listen to the saints praise their God? Because your, Psalm 63.3 says it very powerfully. Because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. Kevin DeYoung, wonderful young pastor. If you don't know who he is, look him up. He notes this. It's a familiar pattern in the Bible. It's, it's, a, it's a pattern throughout Scripture. God saves and his people sing. Uh, saved people Love to sing. Praise God. Praise praise God with your lips. Even if you don't think you can carry a tune, praise God with your lips, believer. Because you might just impress upon that unbeliever beside you the glory of the gospel in doing so. Lastly, and I'm out of time. Let me give you a little bit of encouragement as we close. And I know that was a, that's a lot. That's a, that's a deep, deep song to pack into 30 minutes. Um, but Frank wouldn't let me talk more than 30 minutes. So. If you're not a believer, this is good news. The wonderful truth in this is that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I didn't hear an amen on that one. Um, 
it's clear from Scripture that David is a believer. And actually what we have here is, is not a non-believer's prayer, although the, the pattern matches. The, pattern, the, the Scripture we have here is a prayer of a believer asking forgiveness from his God. David was a believer. He's not praying for salvation. He already had it. We're told, I think that's clear. So why do we ask forgiveness as a Christian? We've repented. We've believed. We've been promised that we've done that. We've turned our life to Christ. And we're his now. Why do we continue asking for forgiveness if the cross has already answered that? The cross, this is a John Piper quote. The cross isn't the reason we don't ask. The cross is the basis for our confidence that the answer will be yes. That should give you some encouragement. If you're a believer and you're not seeing your sin daily um, and calling out to God to forgive you, examine your heart. Maybe you should pray this prayer as a non-believer. Um, one, one last little kind of side note. I'll, I'll throw this in for free. God used Nathan to deliver and call attention to David's sin. Did you notice that? And when Nathan did so, did David cast him off? No. Did David fire back accusations at him? No. Is David angry at Nathan? No. God used a brother in Christ to call another brother who had fallen severely. And he called him back to himself. He brought David's sin to light and David responded just the way that any sinner should. And complete brokenness. What a wonderful example. A wonderful example of accountability with fellow believers. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what we're to do also. Do you know somebody? You don't, have to, don't, don't call their name out. <laughs> do you know somebody who's teetering uh, on fallenness? Do you know somebody who has sinned greatly and has yet to repent? Go to him or to her. Uh, call them to repentance. It's your duty and it's your command, Matthew 18. It's your command in Scripture to do so. I would hope that if I were being blinded by sin, someone would do that for me, for my eternal good and his glory. So do you love your fellow Christians enough to do this? It's a bold and it's a scary thing. Um, so this is, a, this is a beautiful template for a prayer of repentance. There's an old hymn written back in the 1870s by James Nicholson, not John Nicholson. It's called Wider Than Snow. Let me just read it and then we'll close. It says, Lord Jesus, thou seest. This is old English. Lord Jesus, thou seest, I patiently wait. Come now, and within me a new heart create. To those who have sought thee, thou never saidst no. Now wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The blessing by faith I receive from above. O glory, my soul is made perfect in love. My prayer has prevailed, and this moment I know the blood is applied. I am whiter than snow. Friends, if you don't know Christ, cry out in repentance today. Believers, rest 
and assurance. If either of you do one of those two things, you can be sure that your sins have been washed away, washed whiter than snow. Let's pray. Lord, there's so much truth in this song. Cause us, Lord, to see our own sinfulness. But I pray that we would see, see our sin the way the psalmist saw his sin, worthy of judgment. It's in need of grace. Lord, we, we accept full responsibility of our sin. Lord, give us the joy of our salvation. If we've lost that, Lord, grant us the joy in you. If there are here, those here who don't know you tonight, Lord, have mercy on them. Send your spirit to convict them and draw them to yourself. Save their souls, Lord. And may we all cry to you as David did. Lord, have mercy on me according to your steadfast love. Father, be with us tonight. Be with us throughout the rest of this week. Prepare our hearts for worship on Sunday. In Christ we pray. Amen.